So we will be in Genesis 38. I'm going to do 38 and 39 because we actually hit 39 twice on a Sunday. So there's just a little bit to do in there. But I want to do something really quick. If your Bible's open, look at the last verse in chapter 37. This is Joseph. He's been thrown in a pit. He's now being sold into slavery. So it says, last verse in chapter 37. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Then skip chapter 38 and pick it up in verse one of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Do you need chapter 38? No, right? It's actually wedged into a narrative. And so when you read chapter 38, you can think this, this is TMI. This is too much information, right? It's like the person that tries to tell you the story and they can never quite get it out. You know, the person's like, I gotta tell you what happened to me on Tuesday. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday's the day I take my cat to the vet. It's also the day to take out my trash. We have the best trash man. He's been helping us for 30 years. He's so awesome. But you know what? This year he retired and this young guy took his place. I don't think young men should be driving that big of a vehicle. I don't think he's very good. I've called the trash company a bunch of times and asked them what happened to our old trash man. They don't call me back. Where did these kids get their driver's license at? And you just are like, stop. You just want to shove a rusty shrimp fork in your eye and say, I got to go to the hospital. See this? I got to go. So is it that? Is that what this is? When you read it, it feels way out of place. And when you read it, you're also kind of abruptly slapped in the face. So keep that in mind as we read this because it's, it's actually very interesting. Why do we have chapter 38? Let's go. Verse one. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brother's and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Very important. He's leaving his clan, leaving his family, and he's now joining in with the Canaanites. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chizib when she bore him. Okay. There is a flow to Genesis. If you remember, Judah is the fourth born son of Jacob. And what, if you're reading Genesis, what you've seen is each one of the kids in line have blown it. 
So Reuben is technically the firstborn. He is the one that's supposed to get a double inheritance. He's supposed to be the clan leader. He's supposed to do all this stuff. But remember what Reuben did? He slept with one of his dad Jacob's wives. So that kind of puts him out. Then you're left with number two and number three, Levi and Simeon. Do you remember what they did? They went into this town after they asked everybody to be circumcised and they went into that town and they slaughtered everybody because their sister, their full sister, Dinah had been raped. And Jacob looked at them and said, you guys have made me stink in front of these inhabitants. He'll actually curse them in chapter 49. So what you see is number one son's out, number two, number three son is out. Now we're coming to Judah. Is Judah gonna be the one? Is Judah a good guy or is Judah a bad guy, right? Is the Genesis 12 line going to track through this guy or is he gonna blow it like these other sons have blown it? That's really what you're beginning to see. And so now he's having kids, right? Because the line's gotta go somewhere. And these names are awesome, right? His firstborn, he must've been asked, hey, what do you wanna name him? Uh, okay, there it is. <laughs> no, wait, 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 wait. It's on the birth certificate, sorry, it's done. <laughs> we sent it off. It's like, man, that's a crazy name. <laughs> right when I was reading this a couple weeks ago, it reminded me of this time I took charity to a, it was a Chinese restaurant, it's not here anymore. And we went there, it was late at night. Um, the kids, I don't know what we did, sprinkled Cheerios on the ground or something, said, have at it, and we left them. So we went to town, went to Chinese, and we're like the only one in the restaurant. And the guy that's waiting on us is the owner. So we start talking with him and you could definitely tell he was from China and just great guy. And so I said, hey, what's your name? And he said, Mai. I said, yeah, what is your name? He said, Mai. I said, exactly, I'm asking your name. What's your name? He said, Mai. I said, okay, my name is Matthew. <laughs> what is your name? Mai. I'm like, oh, your name is Mai. <laughs> it was so awkward. I'm like, oh man, I'll just eat my wontons. Thank you. <laughs> kind of like that, Urgh, like what kind of name is that? And then the third born is Sheila. <laughs> she must've really wanted a daughter. She's like, that's it. I don't care. Three sons in a row, I want a daughter. So he got picked on his whole life, I guess. Interesting, like today, have you noticed names now are very hard to determine if it's a boy or a girl, right? The Peytons. Peyton's a boy and a girl name. Tanner's a boy and a girl name. Right? You just go down, Alex. Like when I grew up, Alex was a boy. Now I'm like, I'm not, I have to always ask my daughters, is that a boy or a girl that you're talking about right now in this conversation? So I guess Sheila is kind of like that. I don't know, goes either way. So he has these three kids, boom, 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 boom. And this whole thing is set up by something. He leaves his family and goes and he hangs out with a bunch of Canaanites. And what we're gonna see is, that's a little foreshadowing <clears throat> for the rest of this chapter. It's not gonna go well. Parents, you will find this out if you haven't already. Studies are now showing this dramatically. When your kids hit about 10 years old, you are no longer the one that dictates and dominates how they behave. They're finding more and more that it is the crew of kids around them that lead to the decisions that they begin to make at about 10, 11, 12. 
What that means is make sure your kids are hanging out with good people. Make sure of it. Judah, a full grown man, starts hanging out with the wrong crowd. And man, he goes south in a hurry. Get him in youth group. But Matt, not all the kids in youth group are good. I know your kids are there. And my kids are there. They're not always that good. I know, but the odds are there's better kids there. And hopefully what's happening is the gospel is being poured into them daily and weekly and monthly. And it begins to just add up. Be careful who your kids hang out with. Be so careful. Judah, a full grown man, we're gonna see his hanging out with the Canaanites. He starts acting like one real quick. So here's what happens. Verse six. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh put him to death. Wow, someone said, yeah. Sometimes the Bible is shocking. How wicked did this guy have to be for God to say, that's it. You may no longer pollute my good creation. I'm taking you out. How wicked must he have been? Because God lets a lot, lets a lot of wickedness go by in this book without seeming to do anything about it. But here something happens with this guy and it's so wicked that God just says, that's it, you're done. If you read the Bible through, here's what you find. God seems to have two ways of dealing with evil. The first is to redeem it, to take people that are evil and to move them by a process of his grace and his mercy and love and hard times and good times and rivers and valleys and just life and move them to a place where he can redeem them. But if they won't be redeemed, what you see is God often will remove them. So the two big examples in the Bible of this are the major enemies of Israel. The first major enemy of Israel is, who knows? It's Exodus. It's a guy named Pharaoh, a guy who started throwing the babies of the Hebrews into the Nile to kill them, right? So God shows up through Moses, and through nine acts of what I would call God's grace, God continually says, hey, stop killing my babies. Let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. God gives him another chance. Stop killing my babies. Let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Even his magicians are saying, listen, this is God now. This is outside. By number four, they're like, no, no, no. This isn't just... Smoke and mirrors. This is God, you should listen. But Pharaoh hardens his heart and refuses. And so God finally, number 10, okay, I'm removing you. Well, you go to the next big, big enemy of Israel. It's called Babylon. Babylon dominates after Egypt disappears. Babylon becomes the enemy. Well, there's a really bad dude in Babylon. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And he is full of pride and thinks he's the dude. And God hammers him turns him into a beast in the field. But Nebuchadnezzar, very different than Pharaoh, humbles himself and says, God, you're right. 
and God immediately grabs him and restores him and puts him back in his position. He redeems him. That's really what you see in the Bible. When there's evil, God has two choices with it. Redeem, which is his preference. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But if you refuse long enough and you're hurting his creation, God says, that's it. I'm gonna remove you. So whatever this guy does, God just says, that's it. And there's an interesting thing about, it's really the Bible. It's what I call, the Bible is sparse in its narrative. Have you noticed that? So when you read this, hopefully you did this. If you read this or just now, if you're reading it, hopefully you did this. Well, what did he do wrong? Right? That's what the Bible is actually wanting you to do. So if you remember back to Cain in chapter four, Cain makes an offering to God. And what does God do with that offering? He doesn't receive it. We are never given the reason why. There's no explanation. Well, because it wasn't a lamb, because it was grain. Well, we know there's grain offerings in Leviticus chapter five, so that's not it. Well, it was because of his attitude. It doesn't give us any indication of why God does not accept his offering. And then Cain's countenance falls, right? He becomes depressed and mad and never gives us the answer to it. Now, why doesn't the Bible do that? Because here's what the Bible wants you to do. What it wants you to do right here too. It wants you to think, am I being evil in such a way that's hurting God's creation that he would have to remove me? Because if God gives a specific example here, then we're gonna be like, well, that's not me. I didn't do that one. I'm good. So the sparseness of the narrative in the Bible is there for a reason. It allows you and me to actually internalize and say, am I doing something evil? So give me the example why we're supposed to say, if God will do this, I don't wanna be on that side. God, tell me and show me if I'm leading a wicked life where you would say it's time to remove you. That's really what it's doing, just like it does with Cain in chapter four. So the Bible, that's a, a, the narrative tool of it. It's like the disciples, they get it right for once with Jesus. They make mistake after mistake after mistake. And then at the last supper, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And it says the disciples went around all of them saying, is it I? That's the right response. They're, they're, if you would, tuned in to what the Bible teaches them to do. Is it I? Could I be the one? Could my heart be so depraved? Or is it I? So that's what it's doing right here. So he's wicked. He gets removed. Then Judas said to Onan, go into your brother's wife, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of Yahweh and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, he's got a, she's, he's a, he's not a, he's a, he's a girl. He's not a girl, he's a boy. Till Sheila, my son grows up for he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. You might be thinking, oh, I brought a visitor today. What is this chapter? I cannot believe this. Yeah, that's the way I feel too. <laughs> God, why in the world do you have chapter 38? It's so unnecessary. It feels that way. 
So here's what you have. Um, this is called the Leverite marriage. You can read Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse five. And the idea is this, because this is the genesis of the human race. A family could turn into a clan, could turn into a tribe, could turn into a nation really fast. And so if a husband died without having an heir, it was like shutting down the possibility, the potential for a nation. And so the Leverett marriage was, if you have a brother of the husband, he comes and raises up an, an heir in place of his dead brother. So that's, you can read all about it, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse five. And it was much more than just that. Um, at this time, man, the world's dangerous. Tribes are dangerous. People are dangerous. And a woman without a husband, without a defender, she's in a precarious spot. Eventually her father will die. And then she's all alone. So she needs, she needs family. She needs boys especially that will work and till the ground and take care of her. They're her army, they're her SSI, they're her social security, they're everything. That's what a son was. So all that is wrapped up in the Leverett marriage. Now you have this kid, this boy, Onan, that could care less about that. Nah, I'm not doing that. And here's why. When, when his dad, Judah, dies, he didn't want to have to divide the spoil with this other family. He wanted it all for himself, right? So he's like, no, I'm not going to raise up because it won't be my son. And when my dad dies, the inheritance will be, it'll be divided out for that one. So if we can just cut off that line, hey, I get more cash. I get more money. So he's a very greedy, selfish, uncaring individual about this woman and her future. And so God says, that is wicked in my eyes. I'm done with it pretty brutal. So he's gone. So he has sex without any care about her situation. Oh, he's, he'll have sex with her, but he's not going to raise up an offspring for her. He's not going to care for her. All right. So it's just, a, it's just a bummer. So now Judah is like, okay, <laughs> Ur is dead. Onan's dead. I got one last shot at this. And this gal seems like a praying manis or a black widow it's not happy. So he's like, hey, just hold on for a little while. And when Sheila's old enough, we'll, we'll talk then. But there's no way he's given his third son to her. All right, so that sets up the story. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend, Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Tinma to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timna. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given him to marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, 
if you give me a pledge until you send it, literally he, gets inter- she, he interrupts her. She's not able to finish. What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went her way, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. How about that? (laughs) And the plot thickens. (laughs) You thought the last section was bad. Here we go. All right. So here's what Judah's doing. He's become a Canaanite. So if you read Canaanite literature and you go back to this time when the men would go and shear their sheep in order to ensure that the sheep would have lots of offspring and lots of babies, they would go to a temple prostitute and have sex with a temple prostitute because that would ensure that their sheep would also have lots of sex and make lots of babies. Isn't that, who invented that religion? <laughs> what kind of religion can we think up here? We're out here, sheep. Hmm, how about this one? I mean, you're just like, oh, oh my goodness. I know who invented that. All right, so Tamar knows this. She knows he's become a Canaanite. She knows he's taking these things. So she goes and she plays the part. She sits out there like a temple prostitute, waits for him to come across her. And when Judah sees her, he starts to talk with her and then he just gets fired up. Like he's interrupting her. The, the Hebrew's very abrupt at this point. He just, he, it's, uh, let's go right now. And she's like, okay, what will you give me? Literally, here's what he gives her. His wallet, his credit card, his bank account number, his debit card with his pin number, right? That's how heated up he is. What do you want? I don't care what it is. I'll give you it all. <laughs> I mean, it's, this is crazy. It'd be like this. So like a week ago, I, I picked up Elijah at Ofa and I'm walking up, it's there on 6 and G and there's a couple of homeless guys underneath that. The, it's got a really big kind of covered area and they're both sitting there and I walk by and they go, hey, you got any spare change? No. He goes, I take debit cards and pin numbers. <laughs> It'd be like me saying, all right, here you go, buddy. Just take a dollar, right? I mean, he's nuts here. What he, what he does right here, he gives everything to her. He's full of lust. The thing with sin is it's very expensive. It's the most expensive thing you will ever do. It's co- gonna cost him. It's gonna cost him, right? So there we have it. Plot continues. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at, and now I'm at the roadside. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place say, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. (laughs) You see, I sent this young coat and did not find her. So now he's like, oh, great. She's got my wallet. She's got my signet ring. She's got my debit card. Oh no, call Bank of America. This is not, this is not pretty. Oh, great. 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. 
our sins always look worse on other people, right? He had just done the same thing with her. He'll find out later. He didn't go burn himself, but oh, burn her to the ground. Our sin always looks worse on others. And as she was brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. (laughs) And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So we just went Jerry Springer, right? (laughs) You're the father-in-law, the paternity test now shows you're also the father, okay? You're both, all right. Oh man. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. When the time came of her labor, there were twins in her womb and she was in labor. One put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on the hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. I mean, that's a, cra- that's a crazy birth right there, by the way. That is not a normal birth. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand and his name was called Zerah. Okay, you can see why in Sunday school, they skipped this story, <laughs> right? It's an easy segue from 37 to 39. We'll just skip that story. I'll mention this one more time. And hopefully you're getting this in Genesis because we can easily in our mind look at the patriarchs and we can imagine them as these heroes and these great people and the founding fathers and they're wonderful and they're awesome. Do you still think that about the patriarchs? Right? Judah, his name means praise, right? The line of the tribe of Judah, that's this dude, right? We wouldn't want him to go to this church, right? We'd be like, please go to Parkway. You're just, you're ruining our reputation. (laughs) please don't come here anymore. And you're just trouble. I mean, that's honestly it. He couldn't get into seminary. I had to take all these tests and, and get background checks and have people like vouch for my character. He couldn't get into seminary. We wouldn't let him work in the kid's wing, right? That's it. And here he is, Judah, founding father of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's because, and you should know this by now, the carriers of the promise are part of the problem. That's what the, the Genesis is showing us, that it's not gonna be cured this way because the carriers of the promise are now part of the problem. They're just making things worse and worse and worse. They're breaking it worse and worse. Genesis three broke it. And then the patriarch stamped the glass into shreds, shreds, right? So know that. So why do we have chapter 38? It's a sordid tale. It's not pretty. It's ugly. It's gross. Why do we have it? I think there is a close reason and then there is a far reason. And the close reason is this, and hopefully you're learning this statement as well. God writes straight with crooked lines. So these patriarchs are crooked people, but God has a purpose and he's made a promise in Genesis 12, one through three, and that promise is gonna come true. I will bless all nations. I'm going to do that. And you guys can crook it all you want and stamp it and break it and try to. It doesn't matter how messy you get. I have a purpose and I will accomplish that purpose, period. I will write straight with crooked lines. And so no matter how crooked these characters are, what you see is there is a flow forward. 
And we'll keep seeing that flow forward, right? That's the short. The long one is this. Anyone know why you have Genesis 38? Yeah, it's the answer that's always right. Jesus. Because if you read Matthew chapter one, Matthew one starts out very interesting. It gives a genealogy. Guess who appears right off in the genealogy? Yeah, this guy right here, Tamar, a Canaanite, the, the wrong tribe, if you would, the bad tribe, whose father-in-law, when she's dressed like a prostitute, fathers the line that Messiah will come through, right? And then another woman shows up just a little while later. Guess what her name is? Rahab, guess what her job was? Prostitute, right? And then another woman shows up after her. Guess what her name is? Ruth, and she's a Moabitess. And the Moabites are a tribe that were produced when Lot was seduced by his daughter. Not pretty, right? And then there's another one. Her name isn't even mentioned. She's just called the wife of Uriah the Hittite, right? It's literally saying sin. There's sin right here. Not David's wife. It's the wife of Uriah the Hittite because there's adultery and murder and lying there. So what you have is you have this zoom in of scripture on the family tree of Jesus and the highlighted people are the wrong people, are they not? It's shocking even to us today, it would be scandalous 2000 years ago. You would not, genealogies are never complete. You skip to the important people. That's what you did. But Matthew does the opposite. He highlights all the wrong people. And Jesus never seems ashamed of his family tree. In fact, Hebrews 2.11 would say, I'm not ashamed to call you my family. And if Jesus is not ashamed to call a father-in-law who sleeps with his daughter-in-law, a prostitute, a person who was born illegitimately, a adulterer, murderer, if he's not ashamed to call them his family, then neither should we. That's what Matthew chapter one is saying, that Jesus chooses all the wrong people and he's gonna change them into the right kind of people. And we should never be ashamed to call the wrong kind of people family. That's what Matthew one is all about. It's a brilliant, brilliant chapter. And chapter 38 is showing the line of how Tamar scratches and claws her way to keep the line of Judah going. Amazing woman. It's a brilliant chapter. And then lastly, one other point before we move on. In verse 26, Judah says this, he identified them and then said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give up my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. So he has gone the route of the Canaanite, just party crowd, do whatever you want, that he'd gone that route. And it is this moment of clarity where he's awoken to, oh, man, I've been wrong. I've been living wrong. I think that's why 38 is here as well. Because when, when do you remember God? When it's 75 degrees out and your kids are all laughing, having a great time and healthy and you just lost 10 pounds and you can see your abs again, <laughs> right? Is that when you cry out? You're like, God, where are you? I need you. 
No, it's moments like this. And sometimes the slap of sin reminds us of the face of God. And that's what you see, I think, in verse 26. So quite a chapter, chapter 39. And there's also one final thing. There is a, there's a radical mirror. You have Judah sexually sinning, chapter 38. You have Joseph. What will he do in chapter 39? He won't sin. But what line does Messiah come through? The line of Joseph or the line of Judah? Who knows, man? Grace. Grace is a strange thing. I'm choosing Joseph. Man, he's my dude. Not Judah, chapter 38, but God doesn't do it that way. Why? I have no idea. I have no idea. Because God's grace is something mysterious and marvelous and brilliant. And when you receive it, you love it. When you receive it like Judah, you love it. So Joseph seems to have earned it, and yet he's not. It's amazing. We'll talk more on that later. So verse one, we'll go real fast. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And Yahweh was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that Yahweh was with him and that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph made found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of Yahweh was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Just imagine that. Very powerful dude. Lots of stuff to do. Now his to-do list is this. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, midnight snack. That's it. Because Joseph is taking care of everything. How awesome is that? So now think about Joseph. Joseph have been, has been stripped of his coat, put on this camel or drug, probably half naked through the desert. All his identification, everything that made him special, everything that had set him apart from his siblings is gone now. He is on a auction block in the middle of a massive bustling city where he just totally doesn't look right. Because the Egyptians, if you look at them and, and um, history says they shaved every hair off their body. That's why they always have bald heads. They might have a little beard sometimes, but they were just, they would, they're, they're very beautiful people. They would shave everything. Well, he'd come there hairy, you know, long hair, probably a beard, you know, a seven, whatever a 17 year old could grow, you know, just scraggly looking. I mean, he would look totally, it'd be like Duck Dynasty showing up in New York City. So he's got all that. He had this favor, he had this position. It's been ripped from him. He's got nothing now. He's on an auction block with people opening his mouth, looking at his teeth, poking him, jabbing him, seeing how healthy he is. Imagine that, stripped. He's nothing now. What would you do in that situation? What would you have left if everything was stripped from you? You as a dad or a mom, as a husband, as a wife, your job's gone, your reputation's gone, your money's gone, everything is gone. What would remain in your life? What you see with Joseph is this. 
Four times it says God was with him in this chapter. What remains is his faith and it fuels him. It is his faith that fuels him and it actually rebuilds his identity very different than it was before. He was the favorite son, now he's a hard worker. It rebuilds a brilliant identity to Joseph. What would happen to me, I wonder? I don't know. And he sold to this dude named Potiphar and it uses this term and your Bible may be different, um, ESV. It says an officer of Pharaoh. That word officer, sometimes the Hebrew will translate that word officer, eunuch. You guys know what a eunuch is? If you don't know what a eunuch is after the service, feel free to go ask John Logue, it will tell you. It's a castrated male, right? So there are some that believe because of Potiphar's high rank in Pharaoh's palace, he didn't want anyone playing around with his gals. So he would have been castrated. So he'd be a eunuch. And that might explain some of the behavior of his wife. So that's a freebie. Nobody knows. But the word has that, that range to it, all right? And then it says this about him, that really the rest of this chapter, the rest of this little section is, God's with him and everything in Potiphar's house prospers. What you're seeing is a glimmer of the Abrahamic covenant coming true. Genesis 12, one through three, that the seed, the line of the seed is gonna become a blessing to all nations. So here's Potiphar. His name is very close to a priest, a pagan priest's name. God is blessing this pagan priest, his house, his money, his finances through Joseph. I think that's awesome. My hope and prayer is that the city of Grants Pass is blessed, pagan, wicked, idolatrous grants pass, however you want to term it, I pray that this city is blessed because we're here, because of our love, because of our kindness, because of our hard work, that there is a blessing that flows through us from God to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to unbelievers, to pagans. That's my prayer. Because it happens with Joseph over and over and over again. He is a conduit, a blessing to pagans. That's one of my prayers for myself. May I be a conduit, God, of your blessing to unbelievers like Joseph, right? So he's bought, he's doing well. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am nor has he kept anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. That word laugh, um, 
If you remember Isaac in chapter 26 was laughing with Rebecca in the field, but it wasn't laughing. Do you remember that? It doesn't matter. It's not. The connotation of it is sexual. That's what I'm trying to say. So um, Isaac had lied about Rebecca say, to the Pharaoh again, said, hey, she's my, to Abimelech, she's my sister, right? Did the same thing as dad did. And then one day Abimelech's like looking out the window and he sees them laughing together. And he's like, hey, she's your wife, okay? They weren't laughing together. He wouldn't be like, hey, you guys told a good joke. You're married. No, that's not what he saw. Anyways, it's that same word. So she's saying it has a sexual connotation. But very often the Bible or translators seem to be shy on things like that. So I should have just stopped myself. <laughs> I just, just said, cut it off. They don't remember. It's okay. <laughs> he came in to lie with me. That's it. Now you're seeing the connotation. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. Okay, that, does, that didn't even make sense, right? I mean, it's, it's like, I just think he didn't, it's silly. It's just, it's a, I'm gonna cut it off this time. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Okay, so you see the anatomy of sin here. Verse seven, she cast her eyes on him. The next verse is, she has a conversation about it. And then verse 12, she takes hold of what she wants. Does that see, speak, take hold? Does that ring a bell with anybody in Genesis? How about Genesis three? She saw the fruit, had a conversation with Satan, and then what'd she do? She took hold of it. It's the anatomy of sin. It's the way it works. It always begins with your eye. You see it. And so if you read the Bible, what you'll see is there are these times that the authors are reflecting back on Genesis, really, on the anatomy of sin. And so they'll say this, Job 31.1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eye not to look at a handmaid. Why? Because he knows Genesis 39 and Genesis 3. It begins there. So I've made a covenant with my eyes. I, I'm not looking at that. Or the Psalm, over and over in the Psalms. Psalm 103. Um, 101 verse three says, I will put no wicked thing before my eye. It's a great verse to put on your computer or your TV or your smartphone. I'll put no wicked thing because that's the route of sin. That's the anatomy of sin. It starts with your eye. And then you have a conversation about it. Well, you know, it's not that bad. Well, you know, everyone else is watching. Right? And then you take hold, it takes holds of you, literally. Right? So, so if you look at this, Who's actually the slave in this chapter? Who's enslaved by something? Joseph's free. 
It's, it's this gal that's enslaved. She's this high society. Very, it was probably a very powerful marriage. It was a marriage of convenience and power. She, but she's enslaved. She's trapped by it. And she's a shadow of a person that now the story just ignores, just forgets her. She's off the, you're gone now. You're gone. You don't even matter anymore because of how you're consumed by this. These are how empires fall, right? It's sex. Man, that is the way every, it seems like, you read Greeks, Romans, Chinese, whatever it is. It's sex. That's how people fall. It seems like every day now, there's some new person that is in the news because they got entrapped with their eye in a conversation and sexually assaulting. And now they're falling because of the same thing. Sex, look out. So maybe you've heard of D.A. Carson. Uh, he isn't a professor at Western, but he would come up and do like special talks and stuff. Really brilliant guy. And he has this thing he says where he took a class in seminary and he said it was the most boring professor he'd ever had. Just put you to sleep. Don't have any sharp objects on your desk because you're gonna poke yourself. Like that guy. He said, but I'll never forget when he said, I'm gonna teach you guys today how to counsel women. I've got 10 the 10 commandments of counseling women. And he said, commandment number one, stay behind your desk. Commandment number two, if she starts crying, stay behind your desk. If she needs a tissue, hand her the tissue over the desk, but stay behind your desk. <laughs> it just goes on every, I mean, it's, it's really quite humorous. Like, look out. No one is above it. Look out. Be very, very careful. So Joseph is the only male in the Bible who's described like this. And I think there's a reason why. Righteous people, there's an attractiveness to righteous people. To people who do what's right, to people who live this kind of way, there's just an attractiveness to it. Young people, you wanna be attractive. Be righteous like Joseph, right? And Joseph does what is right. And does he live happily ever after? No, he makes his life worse. Have you ever done what's right at work? Done the honest thing, the right thing, the correct thing, and then had things go worse for you? Yeah, it's very common, very common. But hard does not mean it's bad. And James, an elder, added this Monday, he said, yeah, and easy doesn't mean it's good. Hard doesn't mean it's bad. And easy doesn't mean it's good. Be careful. Integrity, here's what I say. Integrity is its own reward. For you to be able to put your head on your pillow at night and have a good night's rest is its own reward. Integrity is its own reward. Doesn't matter what Potiphar thinks. Doesn't matter what other people think. If you know in your heart, Paul would say, I have a clear conscience. Other people are accusing me of all this stuff. I don't. My conscience doesn't accuse me. I have a clear conscience. Integrity is absolutely its own reward. I have never regretted doing what's right. Not once, not once have I thought, man, I should have done the wrong thing right there. Man, I blew it. I could have done the wrong thing there. I've never had that. Never. If you're contemplating sexual sin, don't. 
Don't. Don't end up in an apartment by yourself, wondering who is tucking in your kids and who is kissing your ex-wife. Don't. Because I talk to men that deal with it all the time. I don't know where I'm gonna see my kid next. I don't know what he's doing. I can't help him. You know, he's got this now. I can't control that over there. Yeah, buddy. If you're considering sexual sin, don't. Don't. Do what's right, period. That's what Joseph tells us. So now, master knows. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but Yahweh was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because Yahweh was with him and whatever he did, Yahweh made it succeed. So Joseph gets the keys to the prison. When does that happen? Imagine that today, man. There'd be mattresses on fire and everyone would be gone, right? They give Joseph the keys. He does it all. This is amazing. So Potiphar hears the story and he gets angry. Who does he get angry at? No one's sure. Because if he was really angry at Joseph, he would have lost his head because that was the punishment for rape. You know who his anger may have been kindled at? His wife. He may have known what his wife was about because he doesn't throw him in the bad prison. He throws him in the king's prison, right? It's the nice prison. We have those in America. I heard an article, I don't know what it was, six months ago on Bernie Madoff. Remember him? He made off with $65 billion. That's how I always remember him. He made off with 65 billion and it, came, it caught up to him. So they, they went and followed up with him in the prison he's in right now. And it was just hilarious. I'm like, dude's got it good. So they said he had cornered the market on hot chocolate in prison and he had sold it for a profit. I'm like, dude, I mean, how do you, why do you even get hot chocolate? Right? You rob people of $65 billion and now you're robbing prisoners of their money for hot chocolate. I mean, it's just crazy. He's got a TV, he's got it going on. He's, he's like the hero to everyone in there. Dude, you made up with 65 billion? I stole like a thousand, dude, that's so awesome. Like, this is ridiculous. No, that's the prison that Joseph's in. Super cush. Maybe he corners the market on hot chocolate, I don't know. But it's not bad. And I think Potiphar knew, nah, that's my wife. But because of power marriages and politics, he can't say that. He's got it, okay. This is what I'm doing. Sorry, bud. And if you read, it appears that there's an overlap. It appears that Potiphar runs this prison. So he's kind of in charge of it as well. So he's still, he's still keeping them close. Um, so there you have it. One final note. It says this in verse 21. Joseph, not maybe the best in the beginning, but unfairly treated, no doubt, starts working his tail off, doing what's right. Man elevates, 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 elevates. Now he's prison. But it says this in verse 21. But Yahweh 
was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. That's that Hebrew word, it's hased. And hased is very hard for us to translate because it's a very wide word. It can be translated faithfulness. It can be translated kindness. It can be translated grace. It can be translated covenant love. It can be, I mean, it's just, it's wide. And here's the best way I think you can think about hased. It's this, it's God will be what you need no matter what you are. That's hased. Doesn't matter how crooked, how bad you are, God's gonna still be what he knows you need. And so Joseph at the very bottom, it says that God's has said was there. In life, we don't need the absence of hard days. We need the presence of God's has said. That's chapter 39. We don't need the absence of hard days. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad. What we need is God's presence. And you can flash forward to a guy named Paul at the very end of his life when he's in prison. And he says, Everyone has forsaken me, but God strengthened me. That's what we need. Corey Ten Boom, you read her story. You don't know Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. We don't need the absence of hard days. What we need is the presence of God's has said. So a prayer I've been praying every morning recently is that first Kings three prayer of Solomon. Jesus, this day, give me a listening ear so that I might rule well. Give me your presence. Go with me this day so I might rule well in Grant's Pass, in my family, with my kids, in my marriage. Help me to do that because I need your presence. And so Jesus, even this day, For those in here who are maybe facing hard times, maybe like Judah, having made poor choices, I pray that they'd have a a verse 26 moment of righteousness, of conviction, of being drawn back into your chesed, your covenant love, knowing that you will be exactly what they need. And just because you've blown it doesn't mean you're cut off because Judah will become the line of the king. I pray for Joseph's in here who have done right and been treated unfairly and punished. I pray that their integrity would be enough, that they would know that they've done what is right and that you ultimately will be the judge and you're the one that's able to make things right. May we trust you more. May we be a group of people that have listening ears to hear you so that we might rule well in whatever area, whatever sphere you have put us in. May your presence, may your chesed go with us, we pray. And may grants pass, be blessed, because your presence is with us. And I ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.